Welcome to the Helping Children Thrive podcast, where we talk about ways to improve your child's health and recovery. I'm your host, Momina Saleem, and I'm a certified pediatric functional medicine health coach. At Helping Children Thrive, it is our aim to educate and empower parents and practitioners with integrative approaches to children's health conditions. Along with this hope that our children can recover, I welcome you all. Welcome, hello everybody, to the Helping Children Thrive podcast. Today we're going to talk about how we can use the role of nutrition and food to help find answers to our children's health. Nutrition is, an, is very central to our well-being, but unfortunately it really is the last stop when we come to unearthing and addressing problems with our children's health. I'm very, very excited today to welcome Kelly Dorfman. Um, she is, she calls herself a, a nutrition de- detective, is something that um, we're going to talk to her about and try to understand, um, you know, what that is, how we as parents and practitioners can be nutrition detectives to help our children. Kelly's a licensed um, clinical nutritionist that specializes in targeted nutrition therapy to address complex medical problems. Cure Your Child with Food, her award-winning book about the surprising ways nutrition impacts common children ailments, is published in eight languages. An updated version was released earlier this year. Kelly lectures internationally and has been featured on numerous television programs and in periodicals, including CNN's American Morning, Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, and Oprah Magazine. She's also on the advisory board of the Gateway School of Mumbai. So welcome, Kelly. Thank you. It's so nice to have you here. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. So I like to start off by just asking everyone how they got into doing the work that they do. So what got you inspired to look at nutrition and you know look at that as a root cause for a lot of kids' health problems? Well, I actually started um, in psychology and I just found that it wasn't as practical as I wanted it to be. So I wanted to go deeper into the chemistry of it. And um, in my book, I talk about I was in college and I went, I used to do all the food shopping for my family. My mother hated doing that. And so I was at the store and I ran into this book called Sugar Blues, which is all about how to use nutrition therapeutically. It was way back in the 70s. So I thought, hey, this is practical. I can do something with this. And uh, I found out in school that they didn't really teach you how to use nutrition therapeutically. They talked a lot about, oh, gee, diet's important. You are what you eat, blah, blah, blah. But they wouldn't take to the next step, which is what you can really do actively and not passively to actually help with conditions. And so I applied that to all kinds of complex medical conditions in my practice. And Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who is a world-famous psychiatrist who passed away a number of years ago, and he lived in the same area that I did. He found out what I was doing and he um, started sending me patients. And then I started um, a nonprofit with uh, three other women called Developmental Del- Delay Resources, which has been taken up now by Epidemic uh, Solutions. And, uh, and we looked at non-toxic ways to address uh, problems with development. And this is when in the late 80s, this whole autism epidemic was starting. And so, uh, you know, back then it was one in 5,000 kids, they were saying. Now they're saying something like one in 60 in some places in the United States. Some places it's one in 40 for boys. So it really has become an epidemic. So, yeah, it really has. And 
um, you know, we're seeing more and more that people are becoming and practitioners are becoming more aware into looking at nutrition as a solution. Um, you know, it's something that wasn't really done a lot before, but people are starting to find alternative solutions for their kids' health. Um, and so what has really helped you? So when you, when you look at nutrition, what would you want parents to understand or, or see um, to address their kids' health? Well, I like what you said in the beginning that this is often the last thing people look at. And I used to call myself a nutritionist, a resort nutritionist, because it's the last resort that <laughs> people, and because nobody likes to make changes. But there's actually a chemistry to everything. So it should be part of the first line defense and offense against this because you're going to expensive therapy, you're going to physical therapy, you're going to occupational therapy or speech therapy or whatever therapies you're going for. And they can only operate if you have the chemistry to help them operate. And so without the chemistry, you're burning up your dollars going to therapy that's going to have a very lackluster response sometimes because if you lift your arm, there's a chemistry to that. If you say a word, there's chemistry to that. So without the supportive chemistry, your body isn't like one of our governments these days that are printing money. I mean, you, you can't run on a deficit. So if you don't have it, you don't do it. So I'm hoping that parents will start seeing this as something first line, not that you have to do anything extreme or go you know, crazy or give up your life to a new religion of, of food, but you really do have to be conscious that this is part of the process if you want optimal results. Yeah, and I, I, I tend to feel a lot with that even in my practice that um, it's something that parents are, are turning towards, but are also still very hesitant to really embrace fully, especially when it comes to, um, you know, especially in like the small therapeutic parts of when we're treating them, they have to go off certain foods. And a lot of kids um, are selective eaters or picky eaters. And so they're always very hesitant to, to stop eat and take away the few foods that we think might be triggering them. Right. Um, and so how would you, um, you know, ask parents to look at this whole, you know, just taking foods away and, and, and addressing it like that. How would you help them with that? Well, there's really two parts of nutrition therapy. The first is, is there something that's bothering you? And so that's a big area in development in some cases, not all cases, but it's, it's significant. And then the other part is, are you missing something that you need for development? Because as you mentioned, like picky eating is a very chronic problem, especially in autism and when there are sensory issues because eating involves so much sensory stuff. So no parent starts out thinking, oh, um, I'm going to feed my child only crackers and cereal. <laughs> you know? But they end up getting backed up into that area if the child is so stubborn and stuck, either because they have development issues or they have sensory issues that cause eating to be uncomfortable for them. And so they just start thinking, well, they just have to eat something. So whatever they're willing to eat, we'll let them have. So, so parents can feel guilty and bad about that, but they don't need to feel guilty and bad. This is just something that happens unbeknownst. Nobody's planning for that to happen. So you just have to take a deep breath and say, yep, I got here. <laughs> you know? And now I have to back my way out of it and realize your child's not going to help you. So you have to have a, a strong plan to work with that's, that's uh, friendly, but also has a lot of structure to it to help the child because the child is distressed. They're, they're not trying to do it to hurt you. They're not trying to do it to, to you know, make people think you're a bad parent or something or starve themselves. They're, they're stuck. 
and just like you are. Yeah, and um, and a lot of these kids, it's also just their, like you said, their chemistry is such that they're not really able to eat other foods or that their minds are so um, addicted to some of the foods that they're eating that almost prevents them from being more adventurous and trying to eat other things, which kind of backs parents into that wall of like just serving them the few things that, that they do eat. Um, in, in your book, you talk about the EAT program, right, for, for picky eaters. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I just made up that acronym so that it would be something cute that people could remember. But basically, it's, um, it's a lot easier to take things out than it is to push things in. Um, so, so one of the things, the first letter E is for eliminate. So you want to look for things like you mentioned that the child might be actually attached to in an abnormal way. So one of the reasons, as you mentioned, that parents are afraid to do this because their child is as eating these foods like a drug and they literally won't touch, smell, even sometimes be in the same room as other foods. And so you're thinking, okay, I'm going to take away, it's almost always one of three foods, by the way, that they're addicted to. They're never addicted to Brussels sprouts and lamb chops. It's always uh, going to be dairy foods, um, wheat, usually are gluten-based foods, and sometimes sugar. And so it's one of those three foods that the addicting foods are like 98% of the time. Mm -hmm. and, and for dairy and sugar, we ought to understand because we can even uh, addict rats to sugar. So sugar is addicting for most people. So that's not unique to kids on the spectrum or kids with development issues. But the dairy and gluten thing is sort of unique. And what they discovered about 40 years ago in Europe was that there is a protein um, in dairy called casein and a protein in wheat called gluten. And that's also found in other grains like barley and rye that when it's not broken down properly, they, this at least is a theory, it forms a chemical that's accepted in the same receptors that take natural painkillers. So you, you really actually do have an addictive, like you mentioned, or an endorphin specifically response. Endorphins are natural chemicals that you make to deal with pain. You've heard of runners high. So when people run and run and run, they get high. That's because they get a flood of these natural pain reducing chemicals. So of course, if you can eat something that does that versus something that doesn't, that's the food that's going to be calling to you. And so there actually is a way the kids are addicted to this stuff the way that you would um, be addicted to cocaine. And, and they're attached to it abnormally. So there could even be a withdrawal process and you have to endure that sometimes for a few days where they're kind of super cranky and not sleeping properly because they're coming off of this chemical. But that is not normal. If you should be able to stop any food, not eat chicken for a week, not eat you know broccoli for a week, not eat M&Ms for a week, and you should be absolutely fine. So if there's something you're taking out that's making you sick, you have to wonder, is that working more like a drug? If I mentioned coffee and I said, don't drink coffee for a week, most people would say, ooh, that would be a problem because that is addicting. And so it should not be a problem to drop these foods. But if it is, that is not a sign you're doing something wrong, but possibly that you're doing something right. Yeah. And it's, it's really scary to think that these foods have such an addictive quality um, that, you know, even small children... Are, are so affected by it, right? That it literally controls everything. Have you seen, you know, with, with these foods that, that you've mentioned, what kind of effect does that have on just the physiolog physiological makeup of these children, right? Their brain, their body, their gut. 
how does it affect them? That's an excellent question, um, Momina. So what happens is that these endorphins or these natural painkillers, the effect they have on them is it affects sleep, it affects wanting to eat, it can lower appetite, it increases uh, pain threshold so that you have a higher pain threshold. So you're, you're almost pain, too pain tolerant, just like drugs, basically. It makes kids less interactive in some cases. It interferes with learning. And so in the early studies where uh, this was the battle days when some of these kids were put in institutions or kind of group homes at a very young age, we didn't know what to do with them. And it was a rarer condition. They found that then when they withdrew these foods and they could because they had an institutional setting, the children started to sleep better, they started to interact more, they'd had less self-abusive behaviors. So yes, it really does interfere. And the big danger is if you wait till they're seven or eight to remove them, which is what some of the early studies did, and they didn't see as much of a difference because their brains had formed under the pressure of these chemicals. And so you have developmental milestone periods where it's better to learn certain things. You can learn a second language when you're 60, but it's a whole lot easier when you're six. <laughs> and you'll notice that when people try to learn a second language when they're 20 or 30 or even in sixth grade, that they have heavier accents, they don't learn it quite as fluently as they do when they're very young because the window for that learning is before six. And so it's the same for other kinds of language acquisition and, and things. You can learn it, but it's just harder. And so we like to stop the interference with learning as early as possible. And we usually get the best results if we do that. Yeah. And how can parents really identify that these foods are causing trouble for their children? Well, that's a, a, another really good question. There are tests, but the best test is really to remove the food because we're, we're not sure about why this is happening. We have theories that are widely accepted in the community that believes in diet. There are still people that don't believe that the diet is helpful, but part of, I think we should address this of the reason for that is because if you take a hundred kids on the spectrum, about a third of them will respond very dramatically to the diet, especially if you start them early. That's, that's a good response to have a third of them have a dramatic response is well worth trying to figure out if your child's in that third, but another third of them won't have any response at all. The spectrum is a big place. It involves a lot of people with genetic conditions and, and brain injury and all kinds of other things. So if you hear people say the diet doesn't work, they're right. It doesn't work for a third of the kids, especially elimination diet we're talking about now. A third, and then there's a third third, the last third, where you get what are called secondary responses. The child might still be on the spectrum, but they're sleeping better. Um, they're doing less self-abusive behavior. They're doing less stimming. Um, they're more interactive. So that's really two thirds of kids that usually have some kind of response if you find the right foods and the foods are never foods they're not eating. So it's not mangoes. Yeah. It's, it's not these strange foods. It's something they're eating every day. So if you're looking for a food that's a problem, it's a food that they want and want and want usually, or occasionally it's a food they're absolutely uh, not eating at all. But of course, if they're not eating it, uh, then it can't be bothering them. Sometimes you'll see that they hate milk, but they love cheese. So they're still getting the milk protein, right? But they're, it looks like they hate milk. And so people think, well, they don't really like milk, but they're eating milk products. And you're also looking for secondary symptoms that suggest that the food is bothering them. That would be digestive symptoms, gas and bloat, abdominal pain, constipation, uh, any kind of GI distress, 
looking for skin reactions, rashes and itching and uh, sensitive uh, skin. You're looking for frequent illness. Those are the three things we see the most often. Now, they're not present in all children. You don't have to have any of those symptoms necessarily, but if you're looking for a quick way to see, I just talked to actually a, a, a woman this morning with a two-year-old and the symptom this two-year-old is having is uh, chronic sleep problems. Since she's born, complete horrible colic for months and months as a, a very young infant. And now his development is, is going pretty well, but he is having terrible sleep terrors. They've had MRIs and EEGs. He wakes up for hours every night. And so that would be another symptom. Something might be bothering him. Yeah. And, and it makes sense, right? Because a lot of these kids, like there, there is something that is causing that imbalance. And again, it's, it's that food that's acting as, as a trigger that's causing a lot of these behavior things. And, and like you mentioned, it's not just for children who are on the, on the spectrum that we're looking at. It's, it's quite wide spectrum. Anyone who um, has a chronic illness or even an, an autoimmune condition, um, you know, these foods can trigger them. There is this, this whole conversation now um, that is happening outside of just the gluten, the dairy, um, the, the sugar, and moving on more to like other foods. So things like histamines or amines or salicylates and, and, and oxalates. How does that play into all of this? Well, we don't usually start there because people would run screaming out of your office. But yes, there's all kinds of chemicals and substances in the, in the body that can disturb you. Sometimes they're found, and we're talking right now just about a family of foods like gluten-based foods or certain kind of proteins, but there are also secondary chemicals that you mentioned, oxalates and uh, histamine uh, in food that can also trigger a response. And uh, yes, so once we, we it, it can be pretty hard to thread through all of that. And some of them cross over. Uh, it's like some of the oxalate foods are also on the histamine list and, 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 and uh, vice versa. But uh, yes, there are all kinds of things. There are also some people that don't do very well just digesting um, specific carbohydrates uh, that are found in grains and in long chain sort of, of uh, polysaccharides. So there are a lot of different possibilities and there are also a lot of chemicals in food. So we were very concerned about gluten for a long time and we still are, but we're starting to wonder if it's the gluten sometimes or whether it's not a chemical that's been added to the gluten. Basically in a lot of parts of the world now, we treat wheat with Roundup as part of or, uh, the active ingredient that is called glyphosate. And we are now using a technique called dry harvesting. And that started in the late nineties, which is about the time when this autism epidemic started really going crazy. And so some thought is that maybe wheat's not such a big issue and it's really some of the ways that it's treated with these chemicals. So there's all kinds of possibilities. We, we're living in, we talk about global climate change, we talk about pollution and we think, yeah, 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 that's kind of affecting people in a statistically vague way but that's real kids and real people that are having problems with these chemicals. And uh, this uh, glyphosate Roundup problem is very serious and it's affecting way more than just kids on the spectrum. It's affecting uh, everybody. Yeah, and so for people that are listening and just you know, giving them a little bit more of an understanding of what kind of foods, so apart from wheat, what other foods can come into contact with glyphosate? 
Well, glyphosate is the world's, uh, is the active ingredient in the world's most popular herbicide. And it is mostly used with, uh, at least originally, it was used as part of GMO uh, technology. So it was used on corn and soy. So about 96% of the soy available in the United States, for example, has been treated with uh, Roundup uh, glyphosate. And about, uh, it's oh, well, almost 90% of the corn. Yeah. Also, in fact, there's a story of one of the candy, very famous candy companies was trying to find a way to use corn um, syrup in their candy that wasn't GMO because parents were complaining about it and they couldn't find enough corn in the world <laughs> to meet their needs. So they had to start growing it and uh, to uh, have non uh, GMO uh, corn stuff in their candy. Uh, so anyway, uh, to just let you know how uh, prevalent. So that's just one aspect. But then they started in the late 90s finding a second application where they use it to harvest. So that was wheat and dry beans and oats. And increasingly, it's moving into rice and other foods. Europe, Europe has been pretty good about keeping this out, except for England, like Spain and uh, Italy and France don't do this with their production. But the United States and um, many other countries do. And so about a week up to a week before harvesting, they spray the fields with this herbicide. It kills off the crop and shrivels it up. That's why it's called desiccation. And it makes it a lot easier to clean up. But the herbicide is then on the food and it's very stable for at least a year. And at first they said, you shouldn't worry about it because you could drink this stuff and it's fine because it works on a chemical pathway that humans don't have. But what they found out is that, yep, humans don't have this pathway. It's called the skinkinate pathway, and we don't have it, but bacteria have it. And it turns out you're full of bacteria. You have trillions of bacteria in your body. And so when you eat foods with this chemical, it just starts slowly killing back all your bacteria, and your bacteria protect you against allergies. So most of the research that are looking at allergies today, uh, the really cutting-edge research, is looking at how allergies and people having more allergies might be associated with missing bacteria in their body. They're missing certain strains. Uh, they're trying to nail down the strains and th that they think it may, this nailing down of a strain to me is kind of problematic because it's probably a whole terrain problem or a whole microbiome problem, but they're trying to find if they can figure out one species so they can put it in a pill and sell it to you, <laughs> but it's probably a big environmental problem. But kids that are born today have less than half the bacteria than kids in a generation or two before. So all the environmental changes with all these herbicides and pesticides and, and hormone disruptors are really shifting our whole biological ecological makeup, just like the ecology of the world is being affected. And that's making us more allergic and more sensitive to all these foods. Yeah, so I it is, it's a big ecological problem. Yeah, I think that is, you did a great job to kind of just, you know, sum it all up and explain really what it is. There are a lot of people that are still very hesitant to accepting, you know, this whole idea that that some of the foods can be causing a lot of trouble. How can parents go about trying to select foods that are safe for them? Well, I think the best way to start with that is start to know a little bit about more your food, where your food comes from. So a lot of us go to the store and we pick up a package and it's like the food of miraculous has appeared in this package and we don't know very much about who grew it or how they grew it or what they did with it. So getting to know 
your farmers and the people who grow your food is one wonderful thing to do if, if that's possible. Now, if you live in the city, that's not so possible. So secondary to that, I think the next thing to do is try to buy food that is raised organically. Now, that's a little bit of a problem now because people know that this is something that's important. So there's a lot of fraud now in organics because everybody wants organic food. And it seems to me it's appearing everywhere, but we don't have the resources to be growing it like that. So some of it is not as clean as it probably should be. But whenever you buy something that says organic, at least you're voting with your dollars. You're saying, this is the food I want. And that pushes the politicians and the economy to start producing more of that kind of food. So that at the very least, your vote, people don't think that they have any power, but every time you buy something, you're telling somebody what you want and what you want to produce more of. So you want to buy food, which can be a little bit more expensive, uh, that is produced in a way that is not only healthier for you now, but healthier for the environment down the road because it's pouring less pesticides into the water. And uh, for example, there's a a big uh, bay near where I live called Chesapeake Bay, and about two thirds of it's dead. Uh, literally, there's no fish in it because of runoff from farms where there's a lot of pesticides and herbicide use and not to mention high amounts of, of uh, animal poop that is, is polluting and making it impossible for the fish to grow. And so it's not just what you're eating, it's the production and the leftovers from that. So you want to get conscious about that. You want to get conscious about what you're buying and buy the cleanest food you can afford to buy. Yeah. And, and there's something that, that you mentioned, just, you know, GMO foods as well, right? Looking at what you're eating. So apart from organic, but also starting to look at foods that are labeled um, genetically modified foods, right? And trying to avoid that. Well, they're not labeled. That's the problem. So you have to use organic as the label, at least in the United States, uh, they have been successful at keeping that off the labels, uh, much to the distress of parents and, and advocates everywhere. But uh, they keep on saying, well, it's going to be too expensive, the food, you won't be able to afford it, so we, we can't put it on there and people won't want it. But there's a good reason that they don't want it. So the only way to know this non-GMO is to see organic, because that's the only label that says that it's not GMO. But uh, there is a, a label that says non-GMO, but there's a little bit of a trick to that, Mamima, which is that it's wheat. There is no genetically modified wheat being sold right now. So you see non-GMO wheat, which it all is. It, they have it, but they aren't selling it. So you think, oh, okay, this is good. But that stuff is still sprayed very often with Roundup for a different reason. So it gets very confusing. So it's not, it's, so you almost have to see organic, not just non-GMO. Yeah. And it just kind of puts a lot more pressure on um, parents to just be more informed and making those informed decisions, um, you know, and making sure that the food that their kids are eating is really like the, the best, like you said, that they can afford. Um, one thing that I wanted to, and, you know, we've talked about triggers, um, and in your book, you talk about that. You talk about the nutrition intervention approach, right? And so food triggers is something that we've already addressed. What else can parents look at? Oh, that I'm glad you asked that because the second area is what are you missing? So if you have a restricted diet, of course, you could be missing all kinds of nutrients, but then you can also be missing nutrients that you need at a higher level because of developmental delays. So if you're developmentally delayed, you need 100% of the nutrition you would normally be getting, plus maybe a little bit more to 
make up the difference in the gap. So we also want to consider therapeutic nutrients. And there are many of those, but one of the ones that's used the most often for developmental delays is long chain fatty acids. And they're usually found in fish oils. Sometimes they're found in seaweed um, oils or extracts for people who are vegetarian. And these long chain fatty acids are your brain's favorite fats. About 25% of the brain is made up of DHA, which is a long chain fat that's found in seaweed. And the fish will eat seaweed and algae and concentrate that. So it's also found in fish. It is something that increases brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is basically a growth hormone for the brain. So it helps your brain to grow and develop, and it's a structural nutrient for the brain. So you literally incorporate into your brain the way you put a brick into a wall. And we know from animal studies over about three or four months, these long chain fats go into the brain and they literally change the structure. I don't know if you know the story of the three little pigs, but there's a classic story in um, American folklore of three little pigs. And, um, and one of the little pigs grows a, makes a house out of sticks and one makes a house out of straw and one makes a house out of bricks. And the moral of the story, if we go through the story, is that the house of bricks works better because it's stronger, right? So it's the same thing with your brain. It sends signals differently. If the structure changes the function, and that's what happens when you incorporate the right kind of fats into the brain. You literally change the way that it, it links the brain together. And there's a robust re research and literature on using long chain fatty acids, fatty acids to help in ADHD, in autism, it's looked at in speech delays, it's looked at it in learning disabilities. We know there's a metabolism problem in dyslexia, for example, with DHA in the brain. So there's all kinds of ways this fat's really important. And yet it is something that's very low in most people's diets. A lot of people don't eat fish, especially if you live in a landlocked area, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't eat seaweed. And we know that you can convert other fats from nuts into these fats, but it's a slow process and it's particularly slow and bad and people on the spectrum and people with ADHD. So we like to give them those bricks already made up. Yeah, um, and, and are there other things that parents should be looking at just as, you know, as some nu nutrients that they might be deficient in or, or that might be less in kids that they should have on their radar to understand? Well, there's so many. So you, you probably would need some help if you had a child with complicated issues, to be honest with you. But two others that come to mind are magnesium. Uh, magnesium is a mineral that is low in many people's diets because it's found in beans and greens. And these are foods that are often low in picky eaters. Mm -hmm. So magnesium is common to the nervous system. We know it's a very high at-risk nutrient in autism. In fact, studies with kids on the spectrum found that they're low in many nutrients. But magnesium helps people to sleep. It helps their muscles to relax. Uh, it uh, it is, has, I think it's involved in way over 300 different uh, chemical reactions in the body. So magnesium is a big one. And then another one that's very low, especially in picky eaters, is folic acid. And folic acid is found in foliage. That's where the name comes from. 
So that's another thing that picky eaters don't like to eat a lot of things that are green. Sometimes they will not eat anything that's green whatsoever. And folic acid is very involved in how you make neurotransmitters, which are chemicals that talk in the brain. And it's also a very big at-risk nutrient where you need high concentrations of it in certain genetic conditions. But we find that it works very well, for example, in Down syndrome, uh, Williams syndrome, uh, alcohol, what is it? Um, the uh, fetal alcohol syndrome effect um, also can do quite well with it. So uh, folic acid is another at-risk nutrient. Yeah. You know, I think it's, this is so great for parents and, and even other practitioners to just listen in and learn. There, there's so much there. There's so much in your book. I, I really do recommend everyone pick up that book and it's Cure Your Child with Food. It, there are so many stories about kids that you've helped, families that you've helped, and the approaches to adopt, and, and just ways that, that you teach your reader how to be a, a nutritional detective. And I feel like every parent should get a chance to, to get the book and read it and learn and try to help their kids that way. Thank you so much for coming on. Today has been amazing. It's been eye-opening for all of us. So thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with us. Oh, thanks, Romina. It's been really nice being here. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you for listening to this podcast and spending your precious time with us at Helping Children Thrive. If you find this podcast helpful, please share it with your family, friends, and others who may benefit. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast on the review section of Apple Podcast. This will help other parents, caregivers, and professionals find the show more easily. Visit momentasaleemcoaching.com to post comments on today's show or ask any questions about upcoming episodes. And sign up to receive weekly updates. Helping Children Thrive is not a substitute for working with a qualified healthcare professional. The information shared here is not intended to diagnose and treat your child. Before implementing anything discussed here on the podcast, make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner. See you all next week.